Good morning, church. Today I'll be reading from two passages, 2 Thessalonians and Ephesians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labour we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Thank you for our Bible reading, and it's a great pleasure to be with you today and to be able to gather physically. For those of you who don't know me, let me introduce myself. My name's Tom. I'm one of the pastors here with BA. And before we launch into our material, 
let me begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word. As we turn our attention to what your word has to say, Father, please help us to concentrate, give us ease to hear, and we pray, Father, that you would humble us before you and before your word. But please also, Lord, open our eyes to the wonders of your grace and your goodness, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a new sermon series on the topic of work. In this series, we will spend four weeks looking at what God has to say in answer to four different questions about work. And today we're considering the question, can I fulfill my potential through my work? The desire to fulfill our potential is a very common motivating force. Many people live with the fear that one day they will reach their deathbed, look back on the life that they have lived, and see that their potential was never realized. What a waste! And this fear of not fulfilling our potential, it's not just a problem for unbelievers. Many Christians feel it too. We worry that the skills and abilities that God has given to us might go to waste. Wouldn't this be dishonoring to God? In this talk ahead, my first two points are not going to answer our question. They're actually designed to clear away some misconceptions first that might get in the way to answering our question. And so our point one is our work is not our calling. Here, I'll address this misconception that God calls us to a particular job or profession. Then once we've cleared that away, point two, we'll replace our thinking with a biblical motivation for work, that is to provide for our needs. And then the way should be clear to finally answer our question today in point three. And the big take-home point from today is this. Our potential is far greater than anything we can achieve in our work. Rather, it is God's work in us that will see our potential fulfilled. Now that I've given away the conclusion, let's turn to our first point. There is a very common belief that many Christians hold God has called me to a specific profession or career. Therefore, it is my God-given purpose in life to serve God in this job. That's what God has called me to do. Wanting to serve God in your job is a good thing. But this language of calling is very, very unhelpful. This idea of calling to a particular profession has become very common Christian jargon, despite the fact that the Bible never uses the language of calling in this way. In the Bible, the language of calling is used in many different ways. Most of the time, it means to give a name or a title. So, for example, 
Mary gave birth to a son and called him Jesus. Another common example is it means to invite or to summon. So the master called his servants to come to him. Now, the important references in the Bible for our purposes today are examples where God is the one who does the calling, where God calls people. And when God calls people in the Bible, it means one of two things, almost every time, one of two things. Firstly, God calls us to become Christians. He summons us into his kingdom. And then once we've been summoned into his kingdom, the second meaning in the Bible is that God calls us to live a holy and obedient life. Now, there are only a very small number of occasions where this calling language is used in the Bible in any way other than the ways I've just mentioned. So let me take you through them. There is one verse in Romans 4 where God calls things, including people, into existence. There is one passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where God describes a situation of life such as singleness or slavery as a calling. But that is a situation that we can change if we get the chance. So we're not called to the situation, it's simply a situation some are already in. Now the important ones, there are only four cases in the Bible of God calling a person to a particular job or task. And so here they are up on the screen. The first case, there is a man named Bezalel, he's an artist, a craftsman, and God calls him to build the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, that is a portable temple for God to live in. The second case, Aaron and his descendants were called to be the high priest for the nation of Israel. Case number three, Jesus called some fishermen to come and be his disciples. And number four, the apostle Paul was called by Jesus to be his apostle to the nations. And then there's a couple of occasions where he's called to go to particular locations on his mission work. Now notice what all four of these cases have in common. In every case, the call that they received was external. Now what I mean by that is none of them were called by internal feelings or impressions. None of them discerns their calling based on their skills and abilities. No, each of them were handpicked by God or by Jesus and set apart from other types of work. And they were called to come and serve God in a very particular, unique role, a special role in salvation history, unlike any other role. Now, nowhere in the Bible... Nowhere in the Bible do we ever find an example of God calling people to an ordinary career or profession. Not even to Christian ministry. Now the way so many Christians today use this language of calling is simply unbiblical. Okay? Our work 
is not our calling from God. Now, there are two dangers that I would like to draw your attention to. What are the dangers of referring to our work as our calling? Well, danger number one, for those who are considering career options that might still lie ahead in the future, if you choose a desired career and then invoke God's language, sorry, invoke the language of God's calling, you make it impossible for other people to speak into your life and suggest that you take a different path. So, suppose I express the desire to become a brain surgeon. And then another Christian brother or sister comes to me and says, Tom, that job is going to consume all your time and energy. Maybe it would be wiser to consider a different job that will give you the time and energy to devote to your family and to your church. Now, if I invoke the language of God's calling, I can shut that person down. God is calling me to this task. See, therefore, God is on my side. And anything anyone says that is contrary to my desire to be a brain surgeon, well, they're just being ungodly. I can dismiss them. As long as God is on my side, there can be no discussion. But if I'm willing to admit that it's actually just my own desire to be a brain surgeon then it's possible for us to have genuine conversations about the wisdom of one path as opposed to another path. We can be open and honest with each other about our real desires and our real motivations. Now, my concern here is that God's calling is very often used as a cover to prevent our true motivations being exposed. Now, could it be that it's really just our own desires for worldly success and for prestige that might be calling us to particular jobs or careers. Why is it that God only ever seems to call people to become lawyers, doctors, and successful business people? Why have I never heard anyone say, I feel God is calling me to be a plumber? or a garbage collector. If I believe everyone who tells me that God has called them to their career, I'd be forced to conclude that God is very upper middle class. It appears that God places more value on jobs that pay well and have social prestige attached. Well, yes, you might say. That's because these roles do great good for society. And God wants us to do great good for the world. Fair enough. In that case, can I urge you to consider becoming plumbers and garbage collectors? Could you imagine life with no flush toilets? Could you imagine life without clean drinking water coming through the taps in your homes? Could you imagine life with no regular garbage collection? What a public health crisis it would be without those services. These jobs contribute enormously to the health and well-being of our society. And yet, despite the enormous good that those jobs do, I've never heard anyone say that God was calling them to that type of work. Could it be, maybe, just maybe, that the high salary 
the social prestige and the sense of achievement might actually be a factor in our desire to pursue certain careers. There's something about the success of making it in a highly skilled profession that makes us feel like we are fulfilling our potential. If you want to be a brain surgeon, a lawyer, a CEO, whatever, that's perfectly okay. There is nothing wrong, nothing ungodly about any of those roles, but please don't spiritualize it by claiming it's your calling from God. Let's be honest about our desires and our motivations. Now there is a second danger to seeing our work as our calling. When we feel the tension between work ambitions on the one hand and the demands of family and home life on the other, it is all too easy to justify a neglect of our families by invoking God's support for our long working hours. If God has called me to this career, then of course God must approve of all the hard work that I do even if it does mean that I neglect my family. Now, if you attempted to use God's calling as a way of justifying a workaholic lifestyle to the detriment of your family, please hear me. God calls us to a holy and obedient life. That includes loving our families and loving our church families. But God does not call us to a specific career. So please, let's never use the language of calling as a way of spiritualizing or justifying a workaholic lifestyle to the neglect of our family duties. Can I say, as a pastor, I feel this temptation too, very much. Potentially, this temptation may be worse for pastors because I'm doing God's work. I left my job as a piano teacher so that I could preach the gospel. So surely, if anyone can justify neglecting their families for the sake of their work, surely it's pastors. But even for us, God's calling is not to the work we do as pastors. The Bible never uses that language of calling, even for Christian ministry. No, God's calling is to salvation and a godly life. And a big part of a godly life is loving our families. So my wife, Inji, and my son, Reuben, they are my number one ministry under God. For me to neglect them for the sake of ministry success would actually be to deny my true calling from God. So please know that us pastors, we are in the same boat as all of you. We're in the same situation. So our first point, our work is not our calling. Point number two. Work is a means of providing for our needs. In this point, we're based in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he addresses the problem of idleness in the church. So in verse 11, Paul tells us the situation. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, 
but busy bodies. This problem may have arisen because the Greek culture that they lived in saw manual labor as lowly and demeaning. Another possibility is it could have arisen because Christians in the church may have been saying, Jesus will return soon, so why bother working? It's almost as if my refusal to work was a sign of my superior faith that Jesus would come back again. Now, whatever their reason, Paul is very firm in saying laziness is not the way God wants us to live. Paul is very much in favor of good, hard work. Now, in our situation today, we might be tempted to overreact against a workaholic culture and to promote a life of taking it easy instead. Sounds kind of appealing. An overreaction might even lead us to justify laziness. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, it is very clear that work is important and necessary. Work is necessary to provide for our basic needs. The crop won't harvest itself. The grain won't crush itself into flour. And the flour will not bake itself into bread. So why should we get to eat that bread unless we're willing to contribute to the work that is necessary for our food to exist? So come with me now to verse 8. Paul says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Here, Paul sets an example of hard work to earn his own income so that he can buy his own food instead of expecting others to pay for him. Now down in verse 10, Paul says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now I recognize there are many people who for various reasons who are not able to work to earn their own living. So please notice it does not say if anyone does not work, they should not eat. No, it says if anyone is not willing to work, they should not eat. If you are unable to earn your own living, that's perfectly okay. Paul's purpose is to rebuke laziness, not inability. And this is actually all the more reason for those of us who are able to work, to work hard, so that we can provide not just for my own needs, but so that we can provide for others who are unable to provide it for themselves. Now, down in verse 12, Paul commands those who are lazy to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, can you see the reasoning that Paul is using throughout this chapter? Hard work is commended because work is necessary to earn a living. If you want to eat, you need to pay for your food. Don't be a burden to others because you're too lazy to get a job. And definitely don't spiritualize your laziness. Refusing to work is not a sign of a higher spiritual life or a sign that you have greater faith in the return of Jesus. No, Paul says, get to work 
and earn your living. But Paul sees work as a simple economic necessity. We work to feed our faces. Now, for most of the world's population and throughout most of human history, only the very rich could ever choose what they did for their work. Only the very rich could ever see work as anything other than a simple economic necessity. This modern idea of following your dreams and fulfilling your potential, it's an idea that only the very rich could ever entertain. So, our second point, work is simply to provide our needs. So now, back to our big question for the day. Can I fulfill my potential through my work? I'm aware that I haven't answered the question yet. I've challenged the idea that God calls us to specific jobs and the way we're tempted to spiritualize our workplace ambitions. I've demonstrated God's purpose for work, to earn a living. But these two points are really just clearing the way for us to now address our third point. Can I fulfill my potential through my work? Well, the heart of our answer today is this. Our potential is far greater than anything we can achieve in our own work. Rather, it is God's work in us that will see our true potential fulfilled. What do you think it would look like to fulfill your potential? What do you need to achieve before you could say, I did it, my potential has been fulfilled? If you look to your career and to your work to fulfill your potential, you will never arrive. There will always be some imperfection. There will always be something more that you could have achieved but didn't. It's like chasing a mirage in the desert. No matter how far you run, you will never get there. There are psychologists or life gurus. You may have heard of Jordan Peterson, for example. They will tell us that we should imagine the person that we want to become and then strive with all our might to be that person. Let's do that exercise for a moment. Who do you want to become? What would your ideal self be like? I'd like to paint a picture for you of God's vision for your ideal self. It looks like this. To be eternal living monuments to the glorious grace of God. Let me repeat that. Our potential is to be eternal living monuments to the glorious grace of God. Now, if you think the grace of God is a small thing, that vision is not going to appeal to you at all. But if you know God's grace in all its wonder and enormity, then to be a monument to that grace is utterly thrilling. Please come with me now to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 1. And here, Paul gives us a summary of God's grace. 
In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul says that if you belong to Jesus, you have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Not some, every spiritual blessing. And he then goes on to list out these spiritual blessings that God has given us as a gift of grace to us. So let me quickly summarize Paul's list. In verses 4, 5, and 11, we are chosen and predestined before the foundation of the world. In verse 4, we have been made holy and blameless in God's sight. In verse 5, we have been adopted as sons of God. In verse 7, we have been redeemed from slavery to sin and death through the forgiveness of our sins. In verse 9, we have had the mystery of God's master plan for the universe revealed to us. In verse 13, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And in verses 11 and 14, we will receive our inheritance as rulers over the new creation. Now, if you didn't get all of that down, that's okay. Just reread Ephesians chapter 1 in your own time. I can see some of you taking notes furiously. It's all there in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Paul describes all of this as the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Friends, we were created from dust. We then rebelled against God and insulted his holy name. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve his judgment to be poured out upon us. But instead, God has taken sinners made from dust and transformed us into the glorious children of God. Dust made sons crowned with glory and honor. Why would God do that for us? Why would God lavish his grace upon us? There is a repeated idea that runs through Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 6, we are told that all of these blessings are given to us to the praise of his glorious grace. Then in verses 12, and 14, we are told that all of this is done to the praise of his glory. All these blessings that God has graciously given to us are given so that God would receive praise and glory. Now, still in the book of Ephesians, come with me now to chapter 3 and verse 10. Chapter 3 and verse 10 says this, through the church, that is through us, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that is to the angelic beings. Now when God wants to show off his power and his wisdom, where does he point? If I was going to guess, I would have said, look at the stars. Look at the galaxies, look at the supernovas, the wonders of the cosmos. 
Surely that is the ultimate display of the greatness and the glory and the wisdom of God. But Ephesians 3 says, no, that's not where God points. When God wants to show off his glory and greatness, God points to the church. He points to us. God says, look at these people. Forget the cosmos. No, these people are the ultimate display of my glory, of my wisdom. And it's not because of anything impressive about us. It's because we are the proof of God's incredible good character, of his love. See, the galaxies display the power, the might of God, his ability to create. But we, the church, are the display of his grace, his goodness, and his love. Now, can you see what all of this means for our potential? When you stop to imagine your ideal self, would you have ever thought that we might be an even greater display of the glory and goodness of God than the stars and the galaxies in the cosmos? Now, our potential is this. For all of eternity, we, the church, will stand as living monuments to the glorious grace of God. This is very counterintuitive. We instinctively think that to fulfill our potential means doing something, achieving something to show how great I am. But in this vision, we fulfill our potential simply by being recipients. We don't achieve anything. Instead, God lavishes his grace upon us. It's entirely God's work and God's achievement. Imagine for a moment that a painting asked the question, because imagine a painting could talk, and the painting asked the question, can I fulfill my own potential? Of course not. But the painter can fulfill the painting's potential. It's the job of the artist who creates the artwork and then when the artwork is complete, everyone who marvels at the artwork will praise the artist who made it. How incredible is Michelangelo who could paint these astonishing images in the Sistine Chapel. It's an amazing artwork. And the greater the artwork, the more praise it brings to the artist. Brothers and sisters, we are God's artwork. And the finished result will be so glorious, the angels in heaven will marvel at us. They will marvel at what we have become and praise God for his grace to us. How incredible is God's grace. Now I wonder, does this vision for your potential make your heart rejoice, or do you feel some resistance to it? It takes enormous humility to accept that our potential involves being mere recipients. A proud or an ambitious person will find this very hard to accept. 
but for the lowly of society, this is great news. You don't have to be the top of the class. You don't have to be the elite of society. You don't have to be the success in the world's eyes. If you belong to King Jesus, it is guaranteed that you will fulfill your potential. So let me compare two Christians, two very different people, and then we'll ask the question, which of these two people is realizing their potential? Person number one. I was the best surgeon in Singapore. Doctors all around the world looked to me for help and for medical advice. My career was the greatest, most successful of anyone in my field. And I'm grateful to my King Jesus, who has blessed me with the opportunity to serve his world in this way. Let's compare them to person number two. I was born in a slum. I never received an education or had the chance to learn a professional skill. But I'm grateful to my King Jesus for sending those missionaries who came and told me the gospel. Now, let me ask you, which of those two people is fulfilling their potential? The answer is both of them. Both of them. As long as they belong to Jesus, both of them can say, I will forever be a perfected bearer of God's image, an adopted child of God, Christ's beautiful bride. I will forever be sinless, blameless, holy and pure in God's sight, crowned with glory and honor, ruling over creation in a resurrection body. I will forever be an eternal living monument to the glorious grace of God. The angels will marvel at me and praise God for the grace he has lavished upon me. I am to the praise of his glory. Both of them can say that. Now you might be thinking, well, I'd still rather be the surgeon. Fair enough. Yes, the surgeon will live a more comfortable life. He will enjoy more wealth and respect from people around him. And his contribution is an excellent and valuable one. And I certainly don't want to romanticize the poverty of the child. Poverty is a terrible thing. But my point is this. There is no spiritual advantage for one over the other. See, the angels in heaven will not look at the surgeon and say, wow, I'm so impressed with his career. But they will marvel at him in the exact same way that they would marvel at the child in the slums. A sinner saved by grace, the ultimate display of God's love and glory and goodness. Now, there is nothing wrong with having a successful career being successful in the workplace. But let me repeat something I said earlier. Let's be honest about our motivations. Could it be that deep down, we really, praise, we really crave the praise of the world? Could it be that deep down, we want to gain a sense of self-importance from our work? Could it be that deep down, 
we are too proud to accept that our potential is God's work and not our own achievement. Whatever our worldly ambitions might be, whatever ambitions we nurture in our hearts, friends, let's hand them over to Jesus. Whatever praise we hope to receive from the world, let's hand that over to Jesus as well. Let's accept this new and better vision for our potential, that is to be living monuments to the grace of God, to be God's artwork, to be to the praise of his glory. So to conclude, can I fulfill my potential through my work? Absolutely not. Our work is not our God-given calling. Our careers are not the purpose for which he made us. They are not what determines our value or our potential. No, the potential of every single one of us, no matter who you are, whether you're talented or untalented, young or old, no, the potential of every single one of us is far greater than anything that anybody could ever achieve in any career. We will be eternal living monuments to the grace of God. And we can be guaranteed that it will be fulfilled in us because it is God's work, not ours, and God will not fail. We were created and we were saved so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Amen.